This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 466. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, joined today by Matthew Marister. Hello, Mr. Riley Bowman. Glad to be here with you guys. No fancy introdu- introduction for you today. That's good. I, I liked it simple. <laughs> <laughs> guys, we're uh, glad to be with you today, this Wednesday. Uh, this is our first show of today. Today, this this particular episode is our monthly legislative news episode. That's where once a month we try to cover and highlight for you the most recent, most most relevant legislative news, meaning talk about specific laws that are being looked at, passed, or talked about. Uh, You know, quite often, particularly during certain periods of the year, we have a lot of these kind of stories to where we'll even do like national level issues and then break things down by the 50 states or, or go through a number of states. Uh, today, you know, sort of, sort of the end of the year, uh, legislative sessions are quieter than, uh, you know, it's it's the holiday season that, that is setting upon us. So, uh, but still, nonetheless, some important legislative stories we're going to cover here today. <clears throat> Plus, we're going to talk about this whole Polymer 80 fiasco, as I'm calling <laughs> it. Because uh, that is pretty much exactly what it is, and of course, this ties in with uh, recent news where we've also talked about the uh, the uh, not the bump stocks, but the uh, braces, braces, pistol brace uh, situation as well. So ATF uh, trying to cause all kinds of issues. Uh, you know, I've, I I I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I wouldn't mind if the ATF were disbanded. <laughs> so, <laughs> And especially right now, things are not looking very good. Guys, today's episode is brought to you by Ready Up Gear Laser Dot Trainer. This is a a uh, dry fire training tool that you can use. It's one of those things. It's a, it's a laser cartridge that you can insert into your the chamber of your gun. All right, and they are they are available in 380, 9mm, 40, and 45. I know we have some in stock. In fact, I think we have all of those caliber options. Nope, not the 380. Hang on. I spoke too soon. We have all options except for the 380. So 9mm, 40, and 45 are all available right now. Uh, it can be found at the readyupgear.com website. And so, you know, this is this is gonna be your most basic tool to use with uh, something like a laser X software uh, because to use that software, you got to have some kind of laser point that indicates on a target that the software can pick up and recognize as essentially a hit, if you will, on target. Uh, and so the, again, this is the most basic option that you can get set up with. So you can, you can purchase one, say a nine millimeter, put it in your Glock 19, do some dry fire drills and together with laser X software, uh, you can actually get some measurable data from that in dry fire settings. And that this is pretty much other than doing like airsoft shooting where you're shooting BBs and looking for hits on target this is your next best option, pretty much, unless you're using something like a cert pistol, which is obviously an option as well. Um, but uh, 
the other thing too is even with airsoft a lot of times shot timers different shot timers won't pick up those airsoft guns shots reliably or very well at all and so my point here is i believe in measurable data as a function of the practice that i put in with a with a gun okay and so one of the cool things is to pair something like the ready up gear laser dot trainer together with laser x software so you can actually get it at the very least some draw to first shot times and that is that is valuable information to, to get so guys check out the laser dot trainer uh, product on the readyupgear.com website all right you'll see it right there today's episode also sponsored and brought to you by the um, what is it the legal, legal boundaries by state book <laughs> yep <clears throat> Apparently, my brain is still not functioning, even though it's Wednesday. You would think it's a Monday. Uh, the Legal Boundaries by State book is our book, is our 50-state legal guide, if you will, uh, that gives you a breakdown of laws, carry laws, possession laws, that kind of thing for all the 50 different states. All right. Especially if you're going to be traveling or doing anything like that. Uh, some of you may be on the road or traveling for the holidays uh, during this upcoming season here. So you might want to consider picking up a copy of the Legal Boundaries by State book. So you have an easy to reference guide right at your fingertips. Uh, yes, there's a lot of the same information available on our website. Yes, a lot of the information is available in our mobile app. But do you always have internet service or phone service? No. Uh, and is it also just nice to have a paper version that's big and large format and easy to read and understand? I think so. So pick up a copy of the Legal Boundaries by State book at concealedcarry.com forward slash gun law book. And that's our sponsorship messages for today. So <clears throat> let's go on to our first story. Virginia legislation to require in-person training for concealed carry handgun permits starting January 1. This is according to NBC29.com. Now, this is actually not new news per se. Uh, we report on, reported on this a number of months ago when this legislation was initially passed. Uh, in fact, I'm trying to remember exactly when it was passed. Uh, earlier this year sometime. Hmm. And what it's done is throw, it, it threw into flux uh, the, the whole idea of the online training for a non particularly the, where, what was really popular was people using this as a means to obtain a non-resident permit from the state of Virginia, which has reciprocity with like 29 states or something like that. Uh, and, and that's actually really relevant because you have people in certain jurisdictions. Maybe you live in the state of New York or California or Maryland or New Jersey uh, where obtaining a concealed handgun permit is either difficult or pretty much impossible to do. Now, while obtaining a non-resident permit from the state of Virginia would, would in, in pretty much all the cases I'm aware of, not allow you to necessarily carry in your home state, it would give you an option to carry concealed once you left your home state and traveled in any of those states that that a non-resident Virginia permit had reciprocity with or was recognized by. And so basically this is going away. I mean, the, the idea of a non-resident Virginia permit, I think is still in, in force, but you can no longer 
apply or, or take what would be online training for most folks. I mean, again, most of most of you say if you live in California and you're thinking I'm going to get a non-resident Virginia permit, you're not going to probably travel to Virginia to take a class there so you can apply for that permit right. or something to that effect. Now, the one thing I'm not real clear on tonight, and Jacob, if Jacob were here, he'd probably, because he, he stays up on top of these nuances more than I do. Um, but, uh, are there other in-person training that would qualify even, you know, something that you take outside of the state of Virginia, but it's in person, uh, say for instance, a, a Utah concealed carry course or, or going to some kind of training academy, you know, like, like a gun site or SIG Academy or something like that. I don't know. I don't know on that, but what we do know is that they, they will stop accepting applications that provided training certificates from online training programs as of January 1st of 2021. Yeah. And, it, and it's important if you, if you are, if you do already have a uh, Virginia uh, non-resident permit, it doesn't say that you'll have to go and you know, go through the class again, it's, they're still going to honor or grandfather those people in. It's just the people that are now applying new. Um, my question would be, you know, as far as when it comes to renewal, um, I don't know if they separate those guys out, you know, in, in how they do the renewal process. If when they go to renew, they'll have to take an in-person class. It doesn't say that. I'm just, you know, it's just a question. It doesn't cover that in the, in the article. So I don't know from what it seems like, if you have your permit already, you're fine. It's just uh, people after January 1st applying will have to abide right. by the new rules. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and as long as you get your application submitted by December, right. you know, up through December 31st, you're good to go. So, so, the, so the fact is, if you are listening and you are in a situation where you think having a non-resident Virginia permit would be beneficial to you, you still have time because right. we actually, in fact, this should have been a, I guess, a sponsor message, if you will, of today's podcast. But guys, you can go to concealedcarry.com and go through our version, our online concealed carry training right on our website. Okay. And you, it doesn't take that. I mean, it, it's a couple hours long of, you know, various videos you're going to watch. You're going to ask, answer some quiz questions and that kind of thing. But you could do it in a couple of hours and get that done. You got plenty of time to do that and get your application submitted by December 31st this year. All right. So you might want to take advantage of that. So, uh, again, you can go, I don't have the exact link handy right now, but go to concealedcarry.com and look up our online concealed carry permit training course and you can get that done today or tomorrow but don't don't procrastinate too long because you only have a couple of weeks while this is still a possibility for you to obtain a non-resident virginia permit so anyway all right so let's uh move on to our next story and then i'm gonna let matthew talk about this stuff because oh. this his home state uh, journal-news.com reporting uh, will Ohio get a stand your ground gun law is the title of this uh, story this article actually a pretty good article I was impressed because it, 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 at the tail end of the article it even breaks down kind of a history of concealed carry law and and gun you know self-defense law in, in Ohio uh, going back and, and this was by the way so I'm just going to touch on a couple things here Matthew and, and then yeah. I'll and go for it for the story because this was really fascinating to me that in 1859 Ohio banned carrying of concealed weapons 
Now that's that Ohio's not unique in that there was a lot of states in the mid mid to late eighteen hundreds that did similar things. Uh, it'd be a really interesting study to go back and and actually learn about you know what what was kind of the mindset, if you will, or or why this was a thing back in in the mid to late eighteen hundreds, Matthew, where as states were banning concealed concealed weapons. I mean, they were if you carried a weapon concealed, it was kind of that was something that the criminals did I, I i is one thing that comes to mind and was sort of frowned upon that like what, what do you have to hide and and what's your problem if you're carrying a weapon concealed because the law-abiding folk would have carried it openly right right and my point in today's world is whether we carry openly or concealed i think you should be able to do any and all of the above and not feel ashamed of it and and also not uh, be restricted by law to do so. But anyway, 1859, uh, Ohio bans carrying concealed weapons. And it was all the way until 2004 when Ohio enacted its first concealed carry weapons permitting system. 2006, a preemption statute was put in place that also allowed that law to, to, to expand as far as the concealed carry program was concerned. And then a bunch of things. But one thing that's kind of unique, and this would be another big one. We reported on this a couple of years ago. Um, when, uh, uh, well, first of all, you guys passed a law in 2016 allowing concealed carry permit holders to carry concealed weapons on college campuses. Mm-hmm. Also, a pretty big deal. Uh, also, in 2018, a law passed to shift burden of proof to prosecutors in self defense cases. That was a big, 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 it's huge. But the one thing that's still kind of an oddity, if you will, especially for a state like Ohio, that is generally a, a pro to a state. And, and has a, a large 2A community, very active 2A community. Ohio is one of the few holdouts uh, as far as conservative sort of lean, you know, again, pro 2A leaning states that didn't have a stand your ground law or something like it. Meaning that as of this moment right now, Matthew, you've got to have pretty good justification to use deadly force outside of your home or vehicle, right? Because in certain circumstances, you you may be required to retreat or at least attempt to retreat first. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and and that's the biggest. That's that's a big hurdle. And there's, I, I you probably know the number. I think there's what twenty twenty seven or thirty thirty seven states that have either stand your ground law or some implied stand your ground um, case law. I'm not exactly sure the the number, but it's up there. There's there's I, I believe there's more uh, it, without a doubt. There's more states that have a stand your ground law or some sort of implication of stand your ground um, through case law. But in Ohio, mm-hmm. one of the one of the rarer states. But um, but yeah, and, and the problem is is that you're forced to show that you had no reasonable uh, way of of retreating because if you if you don't show that, then you can't enter a claim of self-defense, right? So it, it does um, put the person defending themselves in a tricky, precarious situation where I believe, you know, that it, that the reasonableness of your use of force um, would cover somebody who overtly doesn't retreat if they had the opportunity, right? Like if it's reasonable that somebody would have retreated before using force, I think that that would come out in the reasonableness of the use of force and adding on a second layer of the duty to retreat just complicates the situation more. 
Um, that's just my opinion of it. But basically the law, um, the, um, I'm trying to find right here. Um, so the house bill, uh, or the Senate bill already passed, uh, 383, this, the house bill is, uh, it passed out of committee. Um, and the house bill 796 is currently under debate. It started at three. I don't know, uh, what's going on right now. I haven't updated it, but, um, they're debating that bill. It is a, a little bit of a watered down version from the Senate bill. So they made some compromises. Um, but, um, if, if we could get this in Ohio, uh, I, I think it makes sense in other States, you know, as well. Um, it's just, it, it it's it's important, right? I, I I truly believe that stand your ground uh, law is really important. But um, yeah, that's hopefully it passes. I don't know. It's kind of indication that it might not. Um, we do have Kasich, who is the governor, who who has uh, said that he will veto certain gun legislation because he's more on the. Um, I, I want to say the. Um, more gun restriction restrictive side of the table. Yeah. Um, but he vetoed a bill a while back and they had, they overruled this veto with a, with a overwhelmingly, uh, uh, vote to over, you know, overthrow that veto. So it could happen. We don't know, I guess by tomorrow we might find something. I don't know, but, um, yeah, so it's 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 that one. And in Ohio, there's also the duty to inform, uh, which is, you know, if you're stopped by law enforcement in Ohio and several other states, uh, you have to inform the law enforcement officer um, it, it, as early as possible when it's reasonable um, that um, that you have your firearm with you. You're a concealed carry holder and you have your firearm with you. Um, this is also something that's scheduled for hearing today or was scheduled at three o'clock. So I don't know again on this one, this is house bill 425. Um, but this would remove that duty to inform, which is so critical. I mean, I don't know if, you know, if you're a listener that doesn't is living in a state that hopefully, you know, the laws in your state, but living in a state that you don't have a duty to inform law enforcement. Um, imagine, you know, anytime you're, you're driving with your firearm, if you're stopped, for any violation, infraction or whatever, um, you now have to basically give up your Fourth Amendment right to search and seizure and say, I am carrying a firearm. And that, you know, allows the officer to uh, disarm you for the period of the stop and duration of the stop and, and things like that, which is ridiculous because you've jumped through all the hoops to get a concealed handgun license. You're not doing anything illegal other than maybe a traffic violation or whatnot. And without uh, additional uh, articulation of officer safety, right? This person, um, you know, seemed like he was hiding things or um, making furtive movements or or any other indication. They have the right to take you out of the out of the car because you must. You're compelled now by law to disclose that you have a firearm in the car. So, removing the duty to retreat, or, or I'm sorry, the uh, um, duty to inform is 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 so important and if you don't know you know the, the law in your state make sure um another plug for the book to, to to find that out because in some instances you can lose your concealed handgun license uh for a period of time it's a it, you know it might be a misdemeanor or a felony so um these types of laws are are arbitrary and i, I don't they're not good for the concealed carrier mm-hmm. yeah yeah um <clears throat> I decided, you know, I should probably go and look up states with duty to retreat laws. Uh, 
And, and you know, I, I said that Ohio is one of the few holdouts. That's, that's probably still an accurate statement for the most part because we're talking states. There are a few other states that would be generally pro-gun states like Arkansas, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Maine. Maine's kind of, you know, middle ground on, on 2A stuff t- uh, typically. Uh, Nebraska. Um, let's see. Well, North Dakota and Ohio. I didn't even, I forgot about North Dakota. Like I didn't think about that. Uh, those are probably your, your big ones that are generally pro gun states that still have duty to retreat statutes on the books. Other states with duty to retreat, Connecticut, Delaware, Hawaii, Maryland, Minnesota, New Jersey, New York, or, uh, and Rhode Island. Hmm. So, Yeah. Interesting. Anyway, so it's it's about two thirds of the of the nation as far as two thirds of the fifty states um, are what what would be essentially considered stand your ground as far as no duty to retreat outside of a dwelling. Uh, and, and so, anyway, all right. Um, so one thing I noticed that stood out to me, Matthew, actually just looking at that story from journalnews.com was uh, you've got the Dayton mayor, Nan Whaley, Dayton police chief Richard Beal, and others urging Governor DeWine to veto the measure if it reaches his desk. Mm-hmm. And and uh, specifically, Dayton police chief Beal said the measure would make police work more difficult and communities less safe by encouraging armed vigilantism. Yeah. Well, this is a police chief that you know lives with his head in the sand or something because uh, this is a common anti-gunner, you know, uh, argument made about stand your ground statutes that somehow it's going to encourage armed vigilantism. Uh, But if you honestly look at what statutes and how statutes read, uh, you, you either have justification to use deadly force or you don't. Right. Right. And uh, I mean, yes, there's always like cases with sort of gray areas and stuff that comp, you know, they get a little bit complicated and whatnot. But what I think is interesting is that his his viewpoint. And granted, he's a police chief, but his viewpoint is it'll make police work for us more difficult. Meanwhile, it's like so that's more important than all the rest of us regular law-abiding citizens, where it makes it more difficult for us to sit there and go do I retreat or don't I retreat? Is this a situation where I cannot do so safely? Oh, okay. I can use my gun. You know what I mean? Like, like there, there, there might, it makes our protection more difficult as citizens sitting there wondering, do I have to retreat or not? Okay. Do I need to make a reasonable attempt to do so? Is it safe to do so? I don't know. Oh, maybe now I should use my gun. Wait, I'm dead because I took too long trying to figure out, you know, because I'm the good guy here, mm-hmm. right? So that that's an argument that just kind of really irritates me hearing me that hearing that kind of language from Dayton Police Chief Richard Beale like that. Anyway, let's move on. Um, and uh, so you you covered you know very well you know that the do no duty to retreat legislation heading to the Senate floor. Um, but there's also, um, what was the other thing that you were talking about? Duty to inform. Duty to inform. Yeah. 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 That's, that's really huge. That's good. Yeah. And it's, and it's always, it's always, 
you know, thrown out there for officer safety, right? Like same kind of argument, like yep. this is going to make law enforcement's job harder. Well, that's for duty to, or stand your ground law. Now, you know, duty to inform, well, this is officer, officer safety issue, but it, it really isn't um, because any officer who has any articulable reason to, you know, conduct a, a Terry pat down or a frisk of somebody because there's articulable facts that cause them to think that they're at, in danger, right? Um, and that person is armed, they can do that. It, it's already available to them, right? What this, uh, what duty to inform does is just ba- blanketly takes away your fourth amendment right while you're yeah. in your vehicle, um, which is, it, it, it yeah. just, it doesn't make sense. And it's not because, I mean, anybody who's going to tell the officer, Hey, I have a firearm is not the person that they need to be worried about. You know, it just, it just isn't, they're not a safety issue. If they were a safety threat, then they would certainly not tell you that they have a firearm. So, yeah. yeah. You know, and you 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 bring up a great point about the whole fourth amendment. You're sort of like surrendering, at least in part, some of your fourth amendment yeah. protections. Cause you're like, by the way, officer, I have a gun in here in case you're wondering, you know, in case you wanted to like search. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Ken Granada on Facebook, he, he brings up a, a, a comment here. He says, I don't understand how my life could be in danger and be able to retreat safely. It seems to me that it would be a rare circumstance. Uh, and, and like, I agree that probably is somewhat rare where you would have like a very clear cut situation that deals with some of these, you know, these nuanced situations like this. But the fact is, is that anything that puts a duty to retreat, you know, like where you must first consider if you can retreat from a situation safely first, it just muddies the, the decision-making waters is all it's doing for you as a, as a, as a good guy. That's all it is. That's why it should go away. Right. Cause again, you like, and I think this is what Ken's kind of getting at is like, you either have a threat to life or you don't. Yeah. Right. And yes, I recognize that there are situations where, you you may have a legitimate threat to life that by simply turning and running, you may be able to get away from, and that may resolve a lot of those kind of situations. But then again, it might not. Right. How do you know? And, and how do you know? There's no guarantee of that, right? Neither is there a guarantee that by me going to my gun, drawing and using my gun in defense is going to result in a so-called win for me. But, you know, the, the idea of a duty to retreat is a, is a, I want to be careful how I phrase this, but it's a, it's a, cause like we should avoid conflict. We've been huge on this podcast since the beginning that avoiding conflict is always a good choice, right? We want to avoid conflict where, where possible. Okay. Cause we win every single gunfight that we don't have to actually engage in. Right. But, at the same time, muddying the decision-making waters with stuff like duty or retreat is this is where I'm I get a little bit frustrated. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we'll see what happens with these laws in Ohio. Let's go on to this story. Um, this is on Reason.com. This is a really interesting story. Uh, so some of you may be familiar with the with the uh, term Operation Choke Point, uh, which is the Department of Justice operation, if you will. And the idea with Operation Choke Point, this was instituted uh, a number of years ago. The idea was to put pressure on the banking system to cut off financial access for politically disfavored industries. I'm quoting from the article here. 
under the guise of cutting down fraud or money laundering. So basically, and this happened to the Obama administration, um, where the the I, this this is what we're told, right? Like why why would we do do this? Well, <clears throat> the the thinking is that certain businesses. Uh, businesses selling things like fireworks, for instance, or gold coins or bullets or guns or whatever are businesses that might be a little, you know, they're maybe more prone, if you will, to, and and I think this is very much debatable, especially in the firearm business. But, um, but basically the, their, the, the government's thinking at that time is that these are businesses that might be more prone to things like money laundering. All right. Um, and so Operation Choke Point was launched. And what you have is you, you have a financial system, Matthew, where you already have companies that by their own choice might you know, be inclined to have anti-gun policies. So like a PayPal, for instance, like I can't pay you using PayPal to buy, you know, if we were just doing a private purchase of, say, ammunition, or even technically a knife, you know, I, I couldn't, according to their terms of service, Matthew, I couldn't give you money via PayPal Correct. to buy ammunition from you, right? And, and that and that's what we're talking about here. We have businesses like PayPal. Um, uh, I'm drawing a blank. I had it. I think Citibank, I think uh, not Square, but Stripe maybe. Uh, Square, yeah. Square is one for sure. Okay. Yes, yeah, Stripe has some some conditions as well with some of these things. Um, so, yes, we have a number of these businesses, financial institutions, and also payment processors that already might be inclined to say, we don't want to do business with companies that are involved in these these industries. Okay. What, you know, and, and just imagine what those might be, right? But then you have the government basically instituting policy and regulation in a manner that inc- was almost like encouraging financial institutions to not do business with, with companies like that as mm-hmm. well. So you might have some businesses that are kind of maybe in the middle of like, eh, we don't really care, but oh, wait, if the government's saying this and putting a little pressure on us, well, then we might be include in, or we might be, uh, inclined to have like an anti-gun, anti-ammo, anti-dangerous weapon, you know, sort of policy type thing, right? So keep keep in mind the merits here are not whether the the things being sold are legal or not is is more is a broader picture thing. Is like a we're not going to do business with uh, pornography businesses, firearms businesses, knife businesses, you know, all Fireworks businesses, whatever, that kind of stuff, right? Operation Choke Point, I'm quoting from the article again here, was controversial when it was first revealed by the Wall Street Journal in 2013. Obviously, the affected industries cried foul, but Republicans also bristled at what they viewed as a covert politicization, (laughs) struggling here, of the financial system. No wonder, since targeted industries tended to include right-leaning trades, such as arms sales and energy production. The FDIC walked the program back a bit in 2015, but it continued in some form until the Trump administration wound it down in 2017. But I think a lot of the damage has already been done, Mm -hmm. right? And it sort of set the stage and kind of created a precedent, if you will, for other things to happen. For instance, 
New York Governor Andrew Cuomo directed his Department of Financial Services to issue Operation Choke Point style warning letters to financial institutions which provided services to the National Rifle Association. Climate change activists have turned similar tactics towards banks who process payments for oil and gas companies, right? So basically, again, sort of the standard and the precedent was set that wherever there's a group that wants to shut something down, financial pressure will be a tempting tool of suppression. Mm -hmm. Enter people like acting director of the OCC. What is the OCC? The OCC is the, uh, uh, I had it here. Hold on. I'm, I'm, I'm pulling it back up. The office of the comptroller of the currency. <laughs> okay. Which is a government institution. Uh, the office of the comptroller of the currency, the current acting director. His name is Brian Brooks. Okay, and he has proposed a rule change that would make government-supported financial suppression much harder legally. It's legally clever, it says, and makes use of, a, of an Obama-era law to stave off future Obama-style injustices. Basically, the, the idea here is to use the Dodd-Frank Act, which was part of that was to ensure fair access to things like loans and other financial services um, for minorities, you know, so basically the idea is that regardless of race, uh, sexual orientation, whatever, like there can be no, no discrimination. Like you have to consider a person's application for a loan, for instance, based on the solely on the merits of them, mm -hmm. their, their credit, their credit worthiness, you know, that, that kind of thing, their financial picture. Okay. So there cannot be anything whatsoever discriminatory about that. Well, basically, Brian Brooks, the OCC, is proposing a rule where we sort of use a similar approach that we can't discriminate against legal businesses and industries. Based solely on that. Right. Right. Yeah, because and I, I think this is I think this is a fantastic approach. Yeah, I and and I agree. I mean, the 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 point of Operation Choke Point uh, in the article, and if you guys get a chance, it's on Reason.com. They're not obvious. They're they're definitely not a right leaning um, conspiracy theorist, you know, website. Um, but it's a really good article. And in the article, it's you know, it shows that Operation Choke Point. There are there are already. Um, issues where uh, somebody who's lending money or or anybody that's going to provide um, you know some sort of credit, right? They have the the uh, ability to look at that person or that business and say, we don't want to uh, uh, lend to you because you're too high of a risk or whatever, right? Um, but so if there was some sort of um, uh, problem with um, you know fraud and things like that individually those those organizations could be targeted but what operation choke point did was group uh, uh, uh businesses into a categories yeah. right which is which is the problem right like i have no problem with a if somebody say hey i'm not lending money to you because you're you, you know your business is doing shady stuff totally okay but what i'm not what I think is is wrong is somebody saying I'm not going to lend uh, you your business money or you money because you know you you uh, buy or sell firearms and there was one person that we you know lend lend money to or one business that 
sold firearms and they were, you know, doing some shady stuff. So therefore you must be shady yourself. And that's just, it's not right. Like it it doesn't make sense. And so um, I get it. You know, I don't want the government dictating who private institutions lend money to, and you must lend money to this organization against your will. That's not what I would, you know, uh, stand behind at all. But the actual opposite is going on where this is discriminatory. I mean, um, it's, and it's, it's just not right. So all classes of businesses or industries. Yeah. I mean, if you just took, you know, if you just took out the word gun business and put like a, uh, ethnic group or a religious group or, a you know, a political affiliation, um, I don't like, you know, Republicans. So, because one time, you know, a Republican president had to resign because, you know, he did something shady. Right. So therefore no other Republican will, you know, organization will I ever lend money to. It's just, it, it's silly. Right. But, um, through this Operation Choke Point, like you said, it laid the groundwork. It made it acceptable, or it got people kind of desensitized to the pro the the fact that it's it's grotesque in its in its structure, right? So, um, in I, I don't know, um, it, it's we'll see what happens. But this is this was something good. I mean, uh, we'll see if if uh, if it goes through. But um, you know, it, yeah. it, it definitely makes sense. If you ask me from, from a nonpartisan, just a, you know, a general point of view, um, mm-hmm. I think it makes sense. Yep. Yep. Now it should be noted that, uh, the acting OCC director, again, the, what was it? The office or the comptroller of currency, controller of currency or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite a mouthful. Uh, that is a, a Trump appointed, uh, acting director right now. This Brian Brooks. And he's currently he's, he's the current nominee for a five year term, uh, which you know. Here's the thing: there's a high probability that there's going to be administration change here in the next month, and you know, see that could put an end to some of this kind of stuff. Um, and even if this uh, individual was not was if this nomination was pushed through, he could still be replaced by a Biden, you know, presidency, for instance. Right. Cause I mean, but, Biden was part of the Obama administration that implemented operation choke point. Right. Yeah. So it's not like a far cry to say he would be, you know, privy or who, who would want to reenact some of those yeah. policies. But I like the thinking here and well, one can hope that, uh, cause you know, being the business that we're in running a website, like concealedcarry.com, we've run into situations with, you know, various payment processing type stuff and, you know, and things that we sell. sell. So uh, this is, I, it's a good thing. Well, okay. is, and, and isn't this one of the reasons why we stopped uh, selling ammunition and knives in the store? Is this similar? Well, I mean, okay. So that, that, that's a fair point. Um, it's true. We don't sell uh, knives or ammunition or anything like that on our website. There was a time where we did. But we stopped that uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, well, number one, it was never a very big profit generator for us. Uh, and number two, it, it put in jeopardy some of the other business dealings and platforms and things we were using, namely Facebook, hmm. uh, which is, you know, face, here we are doing a podcast on Facebook, right? And uh, we generate a lot of business from Facebook, our Facebook page and Facebook ads that we run uh, 
And uh, so, yes, you're, you're absolutely touching on some of, you know, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of reasons behind that. Hmm. Um, yeah. So let's go on now to a story. I've never been on this site. D-N-Y-U-Z.com. <laughs> yep. That's it. When, when I saw the link, I was like, is this a legit site, Matthew? Like, really? <laughs> I, I think it is. It passed the, uh, uh, the Facebook fact checkers, maybe. I, I don't know if it did or not, but it's. It, I, I looked at the info. It seemed, it seemed legit. So, <laughs> CDC call for data on vaccine recipients raises alarm over privacy. So this is, a, this is kind of an interesting thing. You know, we find ourselves in an interesting juxtaposition because for years, you know, the gun gun rights activists, and gun you know, two A proponents have been wary of anything that would propose to either create or institute or lay the groundwork for any sort of registration type scheme, anything, you know, relating to the registering or data collection on gun owners. So now we have this uh, COVID-19 vaccination rolling out Uh, right now. The Pfizer vaccine, you know, has received the official approval. It's being administered in uh, states all across the country. Now Uh, the, other uh, uh, vaccine is close on its heels to getting its final approval as well. As far as when I say final approval, I mean like they're, they're, what do they call them? They're, it's not, these are emergency authorizations, right. but, uh, but they're final in that they're being actually, you know, we can now legally push these vaccines out and, and give them to anybody. Right. So anyway, um, one of the things is the Trump administration by that, the CDC. Okay which they're a bunch of doctors and scientists and things. And so this it's, I think only natural for them to want to obtain and collect data on things like this. And they want to see how things are working, but basically the idea is that they, they want to collect names, birth dates, ethnicities, and addresses from every person that receives a vaccine. But some states and jurisdictions are pushing back, including New York, uh, Minnesota has, I think, I think it was Minnesota. Yeah. Minnesota says down later in the article, they are refusing to report any identifying details to the CDC, but they said they will submit de-identified doses administered data. So they're basically stripping out the personal data component. They're reporting on the vaccines that are given, but stripping out the individual uh, personal you know, information. Uh, and so, but it was interesting that governor Cuomo, he's kind of, he made the argument. He said, he, it's another example of them trying to get information on people. They can then use, <laughs> for instance, like in the case of undocumented people, right? Like they may not want to participate in the vaccine program because they don't want to put them, you know, they want, they don't want to end up putting something out there information wise to the government, the government might then turn around and use to deport them or something to that effect. So, but in, in a roundabout way, what it is, it's an argument saying it's, it's very much a similar argument and perhaps a fair one. I don't know. I don't know how much uh, credence I'd give to this particular instance, but the idea of, handing over to the government very personally identifying information and collecting all that, who knows how that's going to be used. I don't have a problem with 
non-personal information being submitted as part of, Hey, this is a vaccine. We want to, you know, we want to be tracking how this is working and if there's any adverse reactions and, you know, like I get that if, if, if we want to stay on top of things and make sure that if there is a problem with a vaccine or something that we get on top of that, we learn why and we get things fixed or whatever. Okay. I get all of that. Um, but I don't know why the government needs my name and birth date and address Right, unless they're com- potentially compiling a list of who has received a vaccine, so they can come knocking on your door when you haven't gotten your vaccine by fall of twenty twenty one or whatever. I don't know, right? But this is this is the same sort of argument that gun owners have used for years about we don't want gun registration or anything akin to gun registration or anything that might be collecting personal information on guns and who owns them and who's got them and where they are and handing that over to the government. And I think that's absolutely a fair uh, concern to have. Yeah. I mean, you hit, you hit all the spots in the article that I I had highlighted as well. Um, Cuomo's, you know, which, which I applaud him on saying that because it's true, right? Like um, we don't know if the government would use, you know, immigration would use that information, but I mean, could they? Yeah, sure. And is that uh, enough to keep somebody from going to get, uh, you know, uh, 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 a vaccination, it could be. And so you're having the adverse, the opposite re- reaction of what you want to, to have happen. Um, and, and I think, you know, it, it's interesting. And as, as you were talking, I was thinking, um, that this kind of situation or this article or, or this incident, um, and using the same argument that gun owners use really shows that, you know, Democrats and Republicans or, or right and left or whatever you want to say, we're really, you know, deep down, if you strip away all the politicization and you just kind of look at the core concepts of, of privacy and freedom, oftentimes we land on the same goal or the same idea, just, it's a different perspective of the issue, you know? And so uh, while, you know, Cuomo says that there shouldn't be a a national registration for uh, people who are vaccinized or vaccinated, um, he does think that there should be one on guns because maybe that's a more a political alignment rather than his ideology of like, or, or a belief that, you know, the government, because if you truly believe the government's going to use a list improperly, um, then couldn't they use the list improperly in other ways? But you may just think that, you know, those, that wouldn't be improper. That would be good. I don't know. But, um, but yeah, I, I just, I thought this was really interesting. I know it's not directly related to firearms, but I think it was really interesting when I saw it because, um, you know, it's the same arguments, it's the same things um, that, that we, we've been saying. Um, and, you know, they're using a pandemic, right, uh, as justification to do, to, to, to propose this. Well, it's the same thing as, as classifying gun violence as a national uh, health emergency, right? It's it's kind of the same um, verbiage being used for both of them. And so if you can use it for this saying we're at an extreme, you know, uh, instance of, of, or a peculiar incident where we need to weigh on the side of caution to, to make sure everybody's healthy because we have a pandemic, you can make that same exact argument that we need to err on the side of caution because we have a gun violence epidemic, 
right? And so um, I just thought that this was kind of an interesting, interesting thing. It just a couple of things jumped out on me, and uh, I thought, you know, it'd be it'd be interesting to look at the people on the other side of the coin using the same arguments that we've been using uh, for for you know opposing a national gun registry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Be it known, by the way, that we're not taking this, this podcast, not taking any stance on, you know, vac on the vaccine, no, 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 vaccine, whether you should get vaccinated or not. Uh, I, that, we're not taking a stance on that, just an FYI, right? No, 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 and I that wasn't the point. Many people, you ought to at least consider and look at getting the vaccine if you have the opportunity to do so. Um, I do see it as being the a way that we, you know, one of the ways we get out of this situation we're in sure. in regards to the uh, to all the shutdowns and restrictions and everything, you know, has taken a, a real serious toll on, on our nation. Let's move on to our final story. This is uh, reported on Amalan.com uh, written by uh, uh, our friend, John Crump over there. Uh, John has done some amazing reporting on this and other issues, including the uh, pistol brace issue as well. Um, this story is stamps.com and authorized.net rat out polymer 80s customers, ATF raid reason. Uh, and, and, and so, okay, basically the story here is, is that what has come out is that the ATF has raided polymer 80. And they particularly, it seems that they're coming after these build by shoot kits. What these were, were kits that polymer 80 produced that weren't just the frame, if you will, right? The polymer frame with the rail components and the and the jig and the drill bits and everything that you would use to essentially drill the necessary holes and make the 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 modifications you'd have to do to to make it a functioning lower frame for a Glock, let's say, right? But what they were actually doing is is going above and beyond that and actually selling these kits that had that came with the polymer eighty frame, all the parts to finish and complete it as well as a barrel and slide and, and in all the internal action and uh, trigger components and so forth. So basically everything in this one kit that you had, and that's the idea that's, that's the name of it, the build by shoot kit. So you, so you buy the, the kit, you build it. I guess that's kind of backwards, isn't it? The buy yeah. build shoot kit. I don't know. Uh, that's what it's listed here as the build by shoot kit. Um, and we can just refer to them as if we, refer to them in the rest of this episode here today. We'll just call them the BBS kits. Mm -hmm. Um, So these BBS kits basically came with everything that you would need to build a functioning firearm. Okay. You had to do the work. You had to finish the 80% receiver or, or the frame, if you will, you had to do that. But once you did that, then you had all the other parts to assemble and build a functioning firearm. Okay. It seems that this is, this in particular is the thing that has come to the ATF's attention that they are cracking down on and coming after uh, versus it, it seems that they're not coming so much after the standard Palmer 80 kit, you know, just, just the frame, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, that many people have bought and, and built guns from. Now it doesn't mean that's not to say that they, they won't come after other things uh, down the road, but right now, apparently it seems, and John talks about it here in this article, that it seems that they are looking at a standard 80% frame and an 80% frame with 
like trigger parts, for instance, in it as one is just an 80% part, you know, that doesn't, it's not a firearm. The other thing they're looking at as though it might be a firearm mm-hmm. because now it's including these other parts to actually like to, the logic doesn't really make sense, but, and, and nothing that the ATF frankly does in a lot of these kind of cases, the pistol brace thing, another example, a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense. Right. But that's what it seems to be going on. Now, what we also know, according to this story, is that companies like stamps.com and authorized.net were served subpoenas by the by the court from the ATF to turn over records relating to kits that were bought and sold and shipped. Mm-hmm. And so and it would seem that the purpose for that. And I've been hearing some things, you know, kind of whisperings, if you will, in the industry of like certain individuals ending up on the ATF's radar that have purchased these build by shoot kits. Right. So this is concerning because the only reason that they I could think that they would want these that level of detail in terms of records is who bought these BBS kits? Where did they go? So they can then start showing up on people's doorsteps or sending them letters and saying, you bought this BBS kit. We've now classified that as a firearm. Turn it over. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's a reference here to how in their records, one California man purchased $22,000 worth of polymer 80 products within two months. The ATF is assuming that the man in question is selling the guns on the black market. That's certainly a possibility. But he could also be a somewhat paranoid prepper (laughs) as well. (laughs) $22,000 worth of kits within two months. That's that's impressive. I got to say that much. Um, I do know of documented instances where certain people or even almost illegitimate businesses have been created and have been buying kits and selling um, illegally, I might add, because once you start doing this for a business, you start taking these kits and building these guns and then selling them. Like you are now a gun dealer. You're building firearms and you're selling unlicensed, uh, unread, you know, un, uh, not registered is not really the right word, but you know what I mean? Like yeah. unserialized, right? Because that's the thing. When a fire, when a standard fire manufacturer makes a firearm, there's a point like once it crosses that 80%, you know, and that's a, that's a very loose number, if you will, it's arbitrary as far as like what's considered an 80% finished firearm and not. But once you cross that 80% threshold, you got to have a serial number on things. Right. So anyway, there's, there have been some fishy things that have happened for sure with regards to these kits. Okay. And, and that's fair. Like, you know, the, th- those kinds of things where individually we, c- we learn of those things and can go after them, well, th- those can be handled on a case-by-case basis. But it seems the ATF is really coming after the, the Polymer 80, for one, in a big way, and, and perhaps those that have purchased their kits from them as well. I mean, yeah. what, what's your take on this, Matthew? Well, I think there was one, so far there's one customer that was contacted by ATF that we know about. Um, I don't know, you know, what it was, uh, if they, 
as far as I know, they didn't try to confiscate or ask for uh, the frame or, or the 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 whatever kit that they bought. They didn't ask to see it or anything like that. Um, however, the the DOJ now or the F- ATF now has a list of all of Polymer 80s customers that they can either leak to the out or somebody could get access to that. And now anybody who who's purchased one uh, could potentially uh, have a visit from the ATF. Um, it's interesting. They, they said between, I believe it was January, January 1st, 2019 and June 4th, 2020, um, there were 51,000 of these kits. This isn't talking about all the other kits. This is just that build by shoot kit. Um, 51,000. Uh, 9,100 came purchase or purchasers that were sh- purchases that were shipped to California. So, um, there's, there's a lot of these kits out there in addition to all the other 80%, you know, frame kits that just didn't have the trigger kit to it, um, or included. And I, I think it's odd because if you think about it, it's, it's, it's strange because if you're not going to consider a, 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 a firearm unless it has in that kit along with it, the, the trigger parts, right. Or the, the firing component, firing unit control components, right. Basically the trigger components. Um, so you could buy, theoretically, you could go on polymer 80s site buy you know, a a 80% kit that doesn't include the, the trigger components and then buy a kit that's trigger components and still be legal. You just can't sell them together. And the ATF is saying that that is, uh, they're using the terminology, terminology readily available to convert to a firearm. Well, I mean, I, I guess, but it isn't a firearm. So if something's readily able to be converted into a firearm, then you're saying in the definition of that, that it's not a firearm. It's just readily able to be converted into one. But then again, you're charging or treating that is not something that's readily available to be converted into a firearm. You're treating it as a firearm itself. And so now, you know, they're saying, well, you didn't conduct, uh, conduct background checks. You can't ship them into California because these are firearms. Well, they're not. You're saying that they're readily able to be converted. That's the whole point. I mean, the whole point is, is that I have an 80% gun that I can convert into an actual gun. I mean, mm-hmm. right. Or I just want to buy the thing because it's not a firearm. If you want to change it in, you know, if, if the DOJ wants to change the definition of what a firearm is, then I'm sure there's, uh, you know, there's legal processes that you can go into to, uh, you know, codify or explain, define what you're talking about. Well, it's, it's called write new law, man. Right. Exactly. Right. So you, you can't just. All, all the ATF can do is within reason and it's always debatable you know where you draw a line at right that's exactly why we have some of these conversations is because their jobs to interpret the law that was passed by congress and there's numerous of those laws most famously things like the gun control act and the national firearms act two two big ones for sure uh that that specify what the definitions of certain firearms are right, right? What I perceive here, I'm sorry, I'm cu- I cut you off. No, but, no. Um, what I perceive is that ATF is trying to redefine mm-hmm. what a firearm is. And is I, I understand that you know technology like this didn't exist in 1934, right? Uh, tech, or 1968, 
when that you know when the GCA was passed or 34 when the NFA was passed. Um, I understand, tech, you know, we didn't have 3D printers. We didn't have Palmer 80 kits. We didn't have uh, everybody in, in their dog, you know, able to take a drill press and, you know, stick uh, 80% lower, AR-15 lower on, on a, you know, in a vice and start reaming out, you know, and, and turning an 80% into a work. You know, like, I understand that a lot of this was not even imaginable at the time some of those laws were crafted. But the fact is the law is the law, right? And to me, ATF is trying to create new law in some of these respects. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's uh, you have to go by the definitions. And if you don't go by the definition, you can't just you're a law enforcement agency, right? Like you're not a law writing agency. You're not you're not you know what I mean? You're not in the you're not crafting legislation. You enforce the laws that are already on the books. If you don't like the law or you you interpret it a different way, um, it it can't be arbitrary. And so um, it, it. I, I, I just think the the concern is is they're trying to redefine what a gun is, um, and I'm not tying this politically, but the, the factual basis is that uh, the the incoming administration met with the ATF prior to this happening. Now, I you can take whatever you want from that that they were directed to do it, or they're they're acting on behalf, or they're they're getting the wind of the new administration. I, I you can you can look at it however you want, but the fact is is that you know the incoming administration has openly been hostile towards the second amendment that i mean with beto o'rourke and in kamala harris saying that you know kamala harris said if congress doesn't act she'll act unilaterally as the president when she was in the debate uh for president um so you know it's op- they're openly uh hostile towards the second amendment uh, they meet with the ATF later on the ATF tries to rephrase or redefine what a gun is they start serving search warrants it could be something to kind of chill uh, people's uh, desire to go out and buy these kits um, even the legal ones right because now they're saying well I don't want to somehow end up on a list because these people are now on a list and so it could be an effort to chill um, the the desire for these Um by legal law abiding people, right. That mm-hmm. want to obey the law, people that don't, they're not going to be, con- you know, persuaded by that. Um, and I, I just think it's silly. I mean, the, the justification they use, you know, somebody bought a lot of, a lot of these kits that, I mean, they're allowed to, they're not firearms, right? Like if they're not firearms, why can't you buy a hundred of them and sell them on your website? You know, why couldn't you be a drop shipper, a, a, a dealer of these, you know, maybe they had uh, agreement from Polymer 80 to sell these things on their site. I don't know, but the argument that they were selling it directly to the black market, they never made that connection in, uh, in the search warrant. It was just kind of like a hypothetical, you know, this is what we're surmising because they bought so many. Well, it's the same argument. Oh, why do you need, why is somebody, who bought a thousand rounds considered like that's a cache of, of ammunition. Well, they, I mean, it doesn't mean you, you're doing anything illegal. You shoot a thousand rounds. That's not a big deal, but to some people it is. So I just, I don't know. I, I, I'm just concerned um, about the privacy about uh, what m- could, this could potentially be a harbinger too. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll have to see. Um, and, you know, it, it, what what I'm pretty sure is is that 
where there's a will, there's a way. And when the new, if they define something, there'll be a way to circumvent the definition because the definitions are always arbitrary and don't make sense. And so uh, manufacturers is going to come up with a way to, to circumvent that um, and, and do it legally until, you know, so um, yeah. I, and what, one last thing I'll, I'll mention is that Polymer 80 refused to uh, give up their records, which is, I think it's important to, to point out that they stood by the, their customers and said, we're not release, releasing it to the DO, uh, the uh, uh, ATF or the DOJ in California who requested them. They didn't. Uh, they had to go through stamps.com and authorize.net, which uh, is their credit card processing to get yeah. the, uh, the name. So that's, that's yeah. laudable of them. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. Um, and, and to that point, Matthew, uh, well, actually, first, I want to touch on Bobby's comment here. How many how many of these 80% kits are used in actual crimes? The answer is we don't know, but we do know they are used in crimes, right? And that's fair, okay? That, that is a truth. There are definitely documented uh, cases where, where 80% firearms have been or ones that were built from 80% kits were used in the commission of crimes. Uh, so there's no doubt that there's there's criminals that have bought these and, and used them to build guns, okay? And I'm not saying that's... Um, uh, the fact is, for us to be a free country, a truly free country, we have to accept the fact that sometimes, and that's the definition of criminal, people that take advantage of society and break society's rules and laws to uh, take advantage of people, Right? So that's what a criminal does. Uh, but for us to be free, because uh, we can we can lock things down in such a way that makes it a lot harder for criminals to do stuff. But we go so far as to restrict freedoms of law-abiding citizens as well. So uh, anyway, um, authorized.net. I want to touch on that, Matthew, in stamps.com. First of all, I don't really blame these two com- com- right. companies for... Uh, for complying with lawful orders, which came in the forms of subpoenas. Okay. Sure. And, and they have no dog or pony in the fight, right? They're just two companies. They're like, we're stamps.com and authorized.net. Like, so like some of you, some people are probably reading this and going, Oh, how dare they? I'm not going to do business with stamps.com. But like, you have to understand like stamps.com doesn't look at this in, in the same way that we look at it. Okay. Um, they're just a business that got served a subpoena that for all, I mean, they probably talked to their attorneys and attorneys are like, yep, this is legit. Turn over the records. Like, right. what are you going to do? Right. It's, it's honorable for a company like Palmer 80 to say, to, you know, stick to their guns and say no, but, um, uh, I don't blame stamps.com or authorized.net in any way, shape or form in this. Um, I blame the, I blame the government, which is where the, this, the blame should be on, on this for, legislating from a non-legislative branch a government trying to create new laws and new interpretations of laws and new ca- and new classifications of guns just like what they're trying to do with the pistol braces okay the ATF is wrong the ATF is corrupt in its approach to these things and i think the ATF needs a major overhaul okay if not disbandment okay because it's not right right um 
but I want to touch also really quick too on, on companies like Authorized.net, for instance, because people probably aren't all that familiar with Authorized.net, which, by the way, is actually one of the largest credit card process or payment processing companies in existence as far as they process a lot of payments that are made online. And they're one of the few that don't get in, they, like, they don't create, for instance, they're not like some of those, like, say, Stripe that really get in the way of gun-related businesses. They honestly don't really care, all right? They don't have a lot of policy in that, oh, you sell weapons or guns? Well, you can't do business with us. So so before anybody jumps on the, how, how dare Authorized.net turn over these records bandwagon and, and threaten to like somehow boycott them, which doesn't make sense because there's no direct way of doing that. Um, just know that, that they are one of the few processors that are actually pretty good to work with. Okay. Anyway, just wanted to get that out there. We need to wrap up this episode guys. Thanks for listening to uh, this month's uh, legislative news update show. Uh, We'll be back later this afternoon with episode 467 of the concealed carry podcast. We'll have some, uh, a great topic to discuss at that time. Do want to announce a giveaway winner at this time. And we are giving away this week a Flight 93, never forget, 511 tactical hat, just like the one I'm wearing here today. Uh, one lucky winner is about to be selected from the last week's entries of uh, to our weekly giveaway uh, program. All right. So if you want to make sure that you are considered and, and at least in the list of potential winners on a weekly basis for the podcast giveaway, then you want to go at least once per week to concealedcarry.com forward slash podcast prize and fill out that form and sign up for the weekly giveaway. All right. And make sure to share with your friends and family to uh, have more entries and more chances to win as well. This week's giveaway winner. Who is it, Matthew? Who do we got? Here's the drum roll. Today's winner is Sandy. Sandy. Uh, All right. Yeah. Congrats, Sandy. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're careful with the information we give out, uh, publicly on the show and stuff. So that's why we only give first names and, and such, but Sandy, just know that you're going to get an email from Matthew saying you're the winner and, uh, please confirm and accept your prize and we'll get that prize to you. Congrats on winning a 511 tactical flight 93. Never forget uh, 911, uh, commemorative or memorial. It's really a memorialized, uh, hat. Okay. Uh, it's a pretty cool hat. We like, we like this hat. Yep. Our next giveaway is going to be a, what a tactical pen. That is correct. Awesome. So we'll give away a concealedcarry.com branded, uh, tactical pen to next week's winner. So make sure you sign up. All right. So it's time to say goodbye to y'all. So a reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care. A reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.